in Hebrews chapter 10 tonight, verses 26 through 39. We're going to cover a lot of verses. Now, I'll just give you a little setup for where we're going, because if most people know Hebrews chapter 11. Some people know Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11, which we'll be getting to the next time we get together, is the, what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, where it lists the men and women of faith throughout history that, that have been recorded, at least some of them here. And what a lot of people don't realize is, is that Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Fame of Faith is tied into where we just left off in chapter 10 and where we're going to be leaving off tonight. And chapter 12 is tied in with chapter 11. And so I'm just going to give you a little heads up and a little setup to where we're going to be going in the next few weeks, which will help you understand tonight. Well, a lot of people don't realize Hebrews chapter 11 was actually given as a little bit of a spanking. Now, as much as we can be encouraged by the men and women of faith and the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, when you get to chapter 12, the Hebrew writer talks about the discipline of God and that we, we, we should understand that a loving father disciplines his children. And actually, as you'll see when we get there, chapter 11 is part of that discipline because... The people, in, the people of the, the, the Hebrew writer were writing, writing to were what? They were under persecution for their faith and they were considering what? Going back, Going back to, to Judaism because they were being neglected or, or uh, not invited to parties and it was a little bit tougher. And so he's warning, as you're going to see tonight, about the danger of falling away. Yet at the same time, he's also saying... Um, if you would even think a little bit about the men and women of faith throughout the Bible history that have gone before you and all they've been through, in comparison, you haven't, and well, as he even says in chapter 12, you haven't even resisted yet to the shedding of your blood. In other words, they went through being cut in two, they went through being destitute, they went through hiding in rocks and caves, they went through all that they went through, and you're upset because you weren't invited to a party? And so what we've got to understand is, is the Hebrew writer, lovingly yet firmly, is going to be giving them a little bit of a spanking tonight, as where we are in chapter 10, which sets them up for further spanking in chapter 11 and chapter 12. But he ends up by saying it's a good thing that this is happening, because your father, if he is working on you, proves that you're his child and he loves you. And so tonight as we take a look at some passages that most people are avoid because, as you're about to hear, they sound very scary. I want you to see the loving hand of God through what's going to be going on tonight. So in chapter 10, starting in verse 26, it says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. 
So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now, as you can see, for most Christians, when they see this passage, there's some things in there that make them go, oh, that looks scary, and they avoid this. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take this section, we're going to break it down, but I'm going to do it in a way in which I want to kind of walk you through a whole bunch of scriptures tonight to kind of show you what I think God wants us to pull out of that. First of all, we've already been through other warnings in the book of Hebrews. You remember throughout the book of Hebrews, all of a sudden there will be this warning, watch out about falling away. Another warning later on, watch out about falling away. And so we're not going to spend our time rehashing that. Hopefully you understand, we've already proven in this study, that the Bible says that if you've been truly born again, if you've been truly saved by God, if He's given you His Spirit, you can't lose your salvation. You yourself can't even walk away because it's God who holds on to you. Yet at the same time, he, the Hebrew writer doesn't know everyone's position and everyone's condition. Just as I sit here and look at you all in this room, and I could ask you if you were a Christian and you say yes, or if I could ask you if you've been born again and you could say yes, only you and God know truly if you've really been saved. Just because you said it doesn't mean it's true. And I want to take you to one passage of Scripture to kind of hammer that home one more time. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and look at verse 5. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So, what is the measurement or the determining factor of whether or not we're truly born again? I'm sorry? That you know it and you know that Jesus is in you. You can't say to me, well, Jim, I prayed a prayer. So? Well, I call Him Lord. Well, Jesus said many will in that day will say, didn't we do this, didn't we do that, or Lord, Lord. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? The real issue of whether or not you're truly born again is whether or not the Spirit of God has come to seal the deal. And Jesus Himself has come to live inside of you. And if Jesus Himself has come to live inside of you, it will become evident that there's been a change. It will become evident that He has come to indwell and that He will begin to make the transformation in your life. Now, the Hebrew writer doesn't know the full condition of everybody that he's writing to. And there may be those within that group who are sincerely thinking about going back to Judaism who never truly were born again. And he says to them, if the people who rejected the law of Moses suffered mercy, I mean, sorry, suffered no mercy and judgment under the testimony of two witnesses, how much more severely do you think God's going to deal with those who have rejected what he's done through Jesus Christ? Remember how we looked at in Hebrews chapter 6? Watch out for those who have had a knowledge of the truth, a, a tasted of the Holy Spirit, who experienced the fact that this is truth and this is real, and then they walk away. There's no forgiveness for those people. Do you remember you understand what I'm saying? And so the Hebrew writer, not knowing the full spiritual condition of everyone that he's writing to, gives a stern warning to those who may not truly be saved and says, if you come that close and don't really have it, please don't be in that group. Please don't be in that group. 
But then what we're going to deal with tonight, though, is this. For those of us who have been saved, for those of us who truly have Jesus living within us, He says something else, though, that a lot of us don't want to deal with, and very few ever do. And look what He says here in verses 30 and 31. For we know Him who says, It's mine to avenge, and I will repay. That's dealing with how He deals with those who reject Him. But look at what He says in the second part of verse 30. The Lord will judge who? The Lord will judge His people. And then it says, and we'll get to that in just a little bit later, in verse 31, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what I want to do tonight is I want to talk about the fact of what the, what the Hebrew writer is talking about when he says the Lord will judge His people. Hopefully you understand that God is going to bring judgment on all who reject Him. You understand that, hopefully, that we don't need to spend too much time on that. But Yes, ma'am, go right ahead. Isn't that a good, isn't that a good thing? What? A good thing. Well, definitely, yes, there is a lot good There is a lot good in that. And I'm glad you brought that out, Ida. And we're going to get to that in time. But I want us to come at it from the angle that Hebrew writer comes at it, and it might even help some more. But yes, if God is judging His people, it is a good thing. That means you're His. And that's what chapter 12 is all about. If you're getting a loving spanking from your father, it's, that's good, because you don't spank somebody else's kids. You only spank yours. Right? And if the Lord's spanking you, that means you're His. And so, yes, there is good in that sense. But most of us don't really think about the fact that we're going to be judged. Most of us as Christians say, thank God I'm not going to experience the judgment of God. Because we hear judgment as the final judgment where He says, depart from me, I never knew you, and you spend eternity in hell. When it comes to being a Christian, we don't think that we're going to experience judgment. And so what I want you to understand is the Bible actually says, and we're not going to take the time to do that now for the sake of where we need to go tonight, but hopefully you do understand that after you pass from this life to the next, whether it's in the rapture or whether it's in your personal rapture, if you will, when Jesus comes and gets you, you're going to experience what the Bible describes as the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ, where everyone will receive for what they've done in their body, whether good or bad. Or actually the Bible, a better translation of bad is worthless. You do understand that even though you won't be judged for your sins, that's been, they've been erased and you're going to go to heaven and spend eternity with God, on the way between here and eternity with God, you're going to stop at a judgment seat where Jesus is going to judge you on whether or not you were faithful and obedient to the things He wanted to do through you in this life between your salvation and when you get to spend eternity with Him. And the Bible says that will determine your reward in heaven. And the Bible says there are levels of reward in heaven. So, do you not understand that? If you don't, we'll go there. You, you're giving, half of you are nodding, half of you give me this stare. Go to 2 Corinthians. Well, not many, of us, not many of us understand the whole details as well anyway. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that's our bodies, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And I know many of us in this room have that feeling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. 
Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. In other words, we're not suicidal. We just want to go be in heaven. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good, like I say, the translation here is bad, better translation of that is worthless. Between when you leave this body and go to your eternal reward, you will be judged by God at the judgment seat of Christ for how faithful you have been to what it is He wanted to do in and through you. That's why in Matthew 24, Jesus told the story of the master who goes away and leaves his servant in charge. The servant thinks, oh, my master's going to be gone a long time. And he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He treats the servants badly, the other servants badly. He gets drunk, and the master comes back quicker than he thought and judges him because of his wickedness. Then immediately Jesus tells another parable, the parable of the ten virgins, and how the bridegroom goes away to prepare their wedding banquet, and the, bride, the, the virgins are waiting. Five have enough oil, five don't. And he takes longer to come back than they think. And five are ready for him, and five aren't. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to come back quicker than some people think. He also says, it's going to seem longer for other people. But then he goes right into the third parable right after that, and that's the parable of the talents. And in the parable of the talents, he gave one five, and another one two, and another one one. And then when the master comes back, he reckoned with each of them to see what they had done with what they had been given in the meantime. And that's what this is talking about. Don't worry about whether or not you have as much to be rewarded for as Billy Graham. You will be rewarded for what it is that God asked of you. He gave one five, another two, and another one, each according to their ability. And who determines our ability? God. So don't sit there thinking, oh, I need to be a five. No, you, we don't know whether we're a five or two or one, and you're never to know whether you're a five or two or one, but just be faithful to do what it is God has created you to be and do, and He will reward you for that. But you're going to be judged one day between earth and heaven, if you will, or on the way, if you will, when you get in heaven, at the judgment seat of Christ, where He will reward you for what you have done after salvation, whether or not you let Him do through you what He wanted to. But that's not the judgment I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about the fact that God is judging us now. A lot of us don't realize that. Because we hear the word judgment and we think He's mad. Well, I want you to take a look at the word judgment in a new way. It's the word assessment. Alright, let me, let me look at it this way. Um, just recently, uh, my daughters uh, did a little project for Ray over here where they took and refinished this little table she had. They, she wanted them to sand it down to bare wood and then restain it to make a different color. They made lots of judgments about that little table. Remember, when you look at a table and you, make, you assess it or you make a judgment, you say, that area needs a lot more sanding. And then they would do what? They would sand. And then they would sit back and make another judgment. Are we done? <clears throat> no, we're not done. That area needs a lot more sanding. And they would make a judgment. And they would assess it. And then they would sand some more. What I want to talk to you about tonight is the Bible says that God will judge His people. And I'm going to walk you through some scriptures that talk about that. Understand that you won't only... 
you're not going to experience the judgment in the sense that God says you're going to hell. That has you've been spared that judgment. You'll never face that judgment. Yes, you will face the judgment seat of Christ where He'll reward you for what you allowed Him to do in this life. But between now and then, God is making judgments about you right now. Does that mean He's mad? No. Is He making assessments? Yes. And when He looks at us, He is going to what? Say, this area needs a little bit more work. And He'll sand. Iron sharpens iron. He will work on you. And I want you to understand that God, who is your Father, is not done with you. And I want you to see that and understand that from, from us going through a little study tonight of taking a look at what this really talks about. So let's go and look real quickly at where the Hebrew writer quotes from here. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Chris is working on these videos for the crews. He's making judgments. And Chris, by the way, is a perfectionist. And so Chris will say, it ain't ready. And he will work harder. And then he'll make more judgments. And that's what I want you to understand. When we're talking about God making judgments, he's working on us. Do do you remember how the Bible says that he has pre-planned, if you will, to conform us to the image of his son? How many of you look like Jesus today? Well, guess what? If He's planned ahead of time to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ, and you're not there, guess what He's going to be doing? Sanding. He's going to be making judgments. Yes, sir? I heard a, uh, got an email today, and uh, um, he was in a Bible study, and they said uh, He's going to refine you with silver. And one of the people in the group, their job was to go to a silversmith and find out how they refine silver. And he said that uh, he has to put it over the heat and watch it to get all the impurities out. If he leaves it too long, it'll uh, be damaged. It'll right. And she said, how long, how do you know when it's done? He said, when I can see myself in it. That's it. That's it. And you all are in the process of being refined. And I want to talk to you about that tonight from the Scriptures and and kind of hammer that home. Because I think it's an aspect of Christianity that very few Christians really understand or deal with. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 32, look at verses uh, 35 and 36. Here God says, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. Now, let me just back up though and see what he's dealing with. He's talking about the wicked. Alright? It talks about, verse. it says, uh, um, let's just start in verse 31. For their rock is not like our rock. As even our enemies concede, their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? Meaning about the judgment that's coming. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. God's saying that, ju- that He is reserved judgment for the wicked. Now the judgment of the wicked, though, is different than the judgment of Christians. The judgment of the wicked is a correct assessment of them, but the judgment of the wicked is a final assessment that they won't be fixed. 
where the judgment or the assessment of believers or the children of God is, here are some things that I want to work on to make you more into what I want you to be. But we will not be separated as the wicked. Now look at verse 36 though. The Lord will judge His people and have compassion on His servants. When He sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. So here we, this is where the Hebrew writer has been quoting from, from this passage here in Moses' song in Deuteronomy 35. So I want us now to just take a look at a bunch of scriptures that deal with the fact that you're going to be dealt with by God in this life. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, I want you to put a bookmark here because at the end of our study we'll be coming back to this passage. But I want to start here as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We're going to come back to this passage in a little bit and break that down. But just understand this for now. The scripture says it's time for what? Judgment to begin with who? For the family of God. And God's people. In other words, it's time for God to deal with His people. And if He's going to deal with His people in judgment and assessment and fixing the things that need to be fixed... And God is going to be seemingly hard on His people. What's it going to be like for those who aren't His? It's going to be really hard. And and I think that's a good way to put it, Allison. It's going to be hell. Alright? As I wrote here in my notes, actually the Bible's been teaching about God's working on His possessions all along. And so I want to show you some. Start with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. A lot of Christians today say, I thank God that He's forgiven me of my sins and I'm going to heaven and... They live their life now for themselves. Oh, I'm free in Christ. Yes, you are. The Bible talks about that. I'm under grace, not under law. Yes, you are. The Bible talks about that. But what you don't understand is the one who bought you is going to be working on you. Why? Because it's time for judgment to begin with those who are His. And He's going to be making assessments to make you more like Jesus Christ. And so if you try to live your Christian life for yourself, and you don't understand that God's going to be working on you, when God works on you, what are you going to assume? I'm sorry? Well, if you you understand that, that He's going to work on you, you would understand that. If you don't understand that He's going to work on you, what would you assume? You're going to think He's mad. He's not mad. He loves you. You're His child. He no longer calls you servant. He calls you friend. 
He has entered, you've entered into a relationship where you can call him Abba, you can call him Daddy. But don't lose sight of the fact that in this relationship, he's still the parent. And what a horrible parent I would be if I would say to my kids, I love you, and, and man, I, I just I want you to know how much I love you, but I never deal with issues that need to be dealt with. Is that a loving parent? No, a loving parent says, I'm doing this because it's for your best. You may not understand it, you may not like it, but I, I have a responsibility, and Becky has a responsibility, in the time that we have, which is getting short with our three kids that are here, to shape them and mold them into the image of Jesus Christ and point them to who Jesus is and what it means to be a grown-up. We've got a short window that we're to be doing that. And as much as we love them, we also need to say, sorry, you can't do that. Or because you did that and I said you can't do that, here are the consequences. Please don't lose sight of the fact, Christian, that even though you're under grace and no longer under law, that your father is going to be continually dealing with you. And by the way, you don't ever get to 18. <laughs> Until you get to heaven, you don't ever get to 18. Let me show you another verse. You've been bought at a price. Do you see that? Go to Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verse 10. We know how we're saved by grace and by faith and not of works. But look at verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Guess what? Whose workmanship are we? We're God's workmanship. Who's doing the working then? God is. What is our responsibility then if He's doing the working and we're His workmanship? Walk with Him. Keep going. Be pliable. pliable. Let Him sand. Let Him pull out the splinters that we get in our our fingers every now and then, you know? Every now and then we stick our hands places where we're not supposed to or put our eyes places where we're not supposed to and God says, this isn't for you and I want to remove this. And we sort of like our sin sometimes, don't we? We have to be willing to let Him take it. We're God's workmanship. When you became a child of God, Jesus became what? It's the L word. Lord. Master. Owner of a possession. You're not your own. And He is actively concerned with your becoming what He wants you to become, what He saved you for. And He's not going to just deal with it when you face the judgment seat of Christ. He wants you to do well at the judgment seat of Christ. It is to His glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be His disciples. And if He wants you to be producing fruit, what's He going to be doing? Working on you so that you will. Sanding, pruning. Well, you just talked about it. Go to John chapter 15. Go to John chapter 15. Look at verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the what? He's the gardener. By the way, um, if those of you that do gardening, do you use tools? Are they usually sharp? If you were the plant, would you enjoy it? Not all the time, would you? 
but you're doing it for the best of the plant so that it'll produce more fruit or more flowers or whatever. But if at times the plant doesn't enjoy it. Again, we're setting ourselves up here as we're looking at this to get ready for what's going to happen in chapter 11 and chapter 12. And I think if we get this foundation laid here, you'll understand chapter 11 and chapter 12 in a way you've never seen before. He says, well, I'm the true vine, my father's the gardener. NIV says, cuts off. If you heard me teach on this before, I believe a better translation is he lifts up every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it'll be even more fruitful. And then he goes on and says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And remain or abide in me and I'll abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide or remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Folks, I want you to hear the part, though, of the fact that our Father is the gardener. And you're under His judgment right now. Does that mean He's mad? No. Does that mean He's making assessments? Yes. And if you all would agree that you don't look like Jesus yet, that means He's got sanding to do. That means there are some things He wants to do in your life. And I'm going to say to you, let Him. Because he who humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. Listen closely. I'm going to say that again. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You're going to be humbled either way. Wouldn't it be better for you to humble yourself than to have God humble you? Just last night I was talking to a pastor and leaving a message on his phone and I was heading to go preach at the homeless shelter at CETA last night. And as I was leaving this message for this pastor, for him to call me back, I said, Hey, Eddie, would you do me a favor? Um, Call me, but don't try to call at 7 o'clock because I'll be preaching at a homeless shelter. And as I hung up the phone, it hit me immediately. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. Did he have to know that I was preaching at a homeless shelter? Or did I throw that in just so that I would look spiritual? And I knew full well I had thrown it in so that I looked spiritual. You know what my father said to do? Call and leave another message and ask for his forgiveness. And so I dialed his number again and said, Hey Eddie, sorry I just left you a message, but I need to leave you another one. What I just did was sin. I shouldn't have told you where. I I just could have told you I'm going to preach. Who cares where? But I threw out that it was at a homeless shelter so you'd be impressed. And I don't want to be one of those guys. Would you forgive me? Cool thing was he called back tonight as we were coming over here. And he said... (laughs) No, he didn't say no. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord he didn't say no. No, actually... Actually, he said this. He said, to be honest with you, when you said it was a homeless shelter, I was impressed. And then when you called with the other message, I understood full well because I do the same thing. And as much as you were used of God, or God spoke to you, He spoke to me through you. Isn't that amazing? God even used my confession to do something in the life of another pastor. Folks, If I had resisted my father's sanding when he said, I don't want you to be like that. And I had thought, well, I don't need to repent. 
My father would have had to increase the grade of sandpaper, would he have not? I'd rather, when he speaks, say yes, sir, the first time. Satan would say it as overthinking it. Yeah, but you know what? I'd rather err on the side of being humble. Do you understand? That's just a simple illustration. We're all that way. And when you learn to recognize the Father speaking to you gently the first time, say, yes, you're right. And make it right. Because the longer you turn a deaf ear to when the Father talks, the more hard your heart gets. And guess who's going to win the process of conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ. And we know the stories of those who finally had to be publicly humiliated before they came to a brokenness in their relationship with Jesus Christ. You're going to be humbled either way. Humble yourself when He speaks. Don't make Him humble you. Let me take you to a passage you might not know about. Go to Jeremiah chapter 10. Look at verses 23 and 24. Listen to what Jeremiah says here in chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. He says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Why? Why is your life not your own? You've been bought with a price. It's not for you to direct your steps. Well, I think God ought to do it this way. Have we ever thought that? Have we ever felt that way? Don't go down that road. Then he says something very interesting thing here in verse 24, and it's going to lead to where we go back to Hebrews 10.31. He says, Correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your anger, lest you reduce me to nothing. Look at what Jeremiah says. God, I want you to correct me. But um, God, could you do it in justice, not anger? Because you are... Very powerful, God. And you're way stronger than me, God. And you could kill me. This is why the Hebrew writer quotes and says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Folks, do you understand that the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who would wipe out an entire army with just a simple word, that same God who was able to stop the sun, the same God, and I could go on and on and on, who would have the walls of Jericho fall, whom we say, what an awesome, powerful God He is. That same God is the one who's sanding. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that some of you may know and some of you may not. And I want to say to you, don't be too afraid. I, I say have a holy fear and reverence for who God is. Because He's God and He gets to do it however He wants. I mean, let's be honest. We look at Job's story. Job hadn't sinned for that stuff to happen. He actually was very upright. But God chose, because of what God wanted to do in the life of Job, and mainly in the life of what He was doing to demonstrate His glory to the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms who weren't, weren't good. 
He allowed Satan to take all of Job's family and all of his possessions. And when Job responds and says, Naked I came into this world, naked I'll return, may the Lord be praised, we think he's done. He passed the test. It's time for somebody else to get worked on. And then chapter 2 comes and Satan says, well, the only reason Job responded that way is because uh, you didn't let me touch him. And God says, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, why don't you touch him? You just can't kill him. And most of us say, wait a minute. That's not fair. That's not right. Hey, you were bought with a price. You're not your own. God can do with you whatever He chooses. Now, let's be honest. How many Christians would read a book today that has that as the title. Well, I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for my best life now. Do you really understand that He's allowed to do whatever He wants to do with you? Or do you get to be God and determine when He heals you, how He heals you? Or are you going to be willing, as Job, to say, even if He slays me, I'm going to trust Him. Now there's nothing wrong with saying how you feel. There's nothing wrong with saying I don't understand this. There's nothing wrong with saying I don't like this. But you ultimately must come to that place where Jesus did at the garden, where He said, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours be done. I want to say to you Christians, you're under grace, not under law. God loves you. You're free. But don't lose sight of the fact in that grace, in that freedom, that you're not your own. And God is still doing something in you and through you for His purposes in eternity. And I can't promise you that it will look like what America wants Christianity to look like. Paul comes to a saving relationship on the Damascus Road. He meets Jesus face to face. He's struck blind because of that encounter. He's told to go to see this man, and his name is Ananias, and he'll heal him of his blindness. And then God tells Ananias, I will show him how much he must, what? Suffer for my name. And Paul's life from that point of salvation until he finally died was a life of beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, All because that's the life God had ordained for Paul. How many of you would have signed up for the Christian life if you knew that's what it would look like? You see, a lot of us say, I believe in Jesus if He'll heal me. Are you willing to say, I believe in Jesus and He gets to do with me whatever He wants? Now again, He he doesn't mind you telling Him what you'd like. He wants us to be honest and open and share But ultimately, we must come to that place and say, Lord, I want to look like what You've designed for me to look like. I'm Your workmanship. You're the gardener. May it be unto me as You have said. Who, who, Who said that? Remember? Mary did. What was Mary just told when she said, May it be unto me as You have just said? She had just been told that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, but that she was going to have to try to explain to Joseph how in the world she was pregnant when she was still a virgin. What young man would ever believe that, let alone the family? She was going to have to now go and explain that actually God did this. I didn't sleep with a man. God put this baby in me. Yeah, right, Mary. Could you pee in a cup? 
We'd like to test your blood right now for drugs, in case you didn't understand what that meant. But Mary's attitude was, may it be unto me as you have said. And folks, I just really feel a strong, strong urge of the Holy Spirit right now to get this out to you that are in this room and those that are listening on this recording as we get closer to the end of the days that we are going to be living in. I cannot promise you that life in America will look like you have thought it would or what we call the American dream. And only those who truly understand that we are His workmanship and whatever He wants to do, we're going to serve Him. Don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Folks, you need to come to that place where you understand now God is God. And I'm not leaving because my bank account went out the window. I'm not leaving because I lost my job. I'm not leaving because my mama died. I'm not leaving because he wouldn't heal me. I am going to stay because there's no other game in town. Where else would we go, Peter said? You have the words of eternal life. I'm staying with you, Jesus. That's real faith. Not the kind of faith that many quote-unquote Christians have today that thinks now that I've trusted Christ, everything's going to be smooth. It's a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But you know what? There's no other hands that I'd rather be in. Let me take you to an interesting story. Go to um, 2 Samuel chapter 24. In this story, in 2 Samuel 24, we're going to read verses 10 through 14. But in this story, David has gotten a little prideful and he decides he's going to count his fighting men just so he can feel pretty good about himself and how many, how, much, how many fighting men he has and how much strength he has and even Joab, by the way if you've ever studied Joab, he's not the most spiritual guy, even Joab says, uh, David I don't think that's a smart thing to do and he didn't even listen to Joab and so David does and then his conscience is stricken Verse 10, David was conscience-stricken. After he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. In other words, David says, let God choose. Because God, even though He's all-powerful and can do all of these with these, He's merciful. And He knows our frame and He knows that I'm only dust. I'd rather have God pick. Now, if we were to keep reading, if some of you have never seen this story, God chooses what? The three days of pestilence. How many people were killed? 70,000. 70, was David one of them? 
No. Everything in our American brain say, wait a minute, that's not fair. David's the one that counted the fighting men. Those 70,000 didn't. It's not how I would have done it. Folks, I can teach on this passage and show you a lot of things that might make some sense. But for where we're going tonight, let me just say, God is God, and you're not. And until you're okay with that, you're going to struggle. Many people have it. I'm going to brag on our kids. Many people have over the years told us how blessed we are to have kids like this. Part of the reason is they each know Jesus as their Savior. For real. But also another part of that is is this. They learned early on that mom and dad are mom and dad. When they were little and they would disagree with a decision either mom or dad had made. Say they were disagreeing with mom. And I would come and get involved in the situation. I would ask one of them, say it was Nicole, who's the mommy, who's the kid? And she'd say, she's the mom, I'm the kid. And I'd say, who made it that way? And she'd say, God did. And I'd say, well, what should be your response? To listen to her. And because they learned that early, even when as teenagers they don't agree, they still have an understanding that they're not the mom and the dad. And they humble themselves. And we're super proud of them. And they have lived a blessed life because of it. So will you. The sooner you understand who's God, who made it that way. And if you trust Him, even though you don't understand, even though it hurts, but you rest in the fact that He is good you will experience the purpose of why He created you, not just for an eternity with Him, but the process of you being conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. Remember what we learned earlier in Hebrews? He learned obedience through what He suffered. Jesus submitted Himself to the Father. He submitted Himself to Mary and Joseph. He submitted Himself to Satan under God's hand because He understood that God was in charge and He wasn't. Let's go back real quick to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse 12. Peter says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment, assessment, sanding, to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Who didn't respond to His judgments and His assessments? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue 
to do good. Most of us all that were here a couple Tuesdays ago would agree. We believe we're in the last of the last days and the return of Jesus Christ is very soon. If that is the case then, what is God doing right now? Is He judging the wicked? Partially. But who's He working on more? The people of God. So don't sit back and say, hey, Jesus is coming back. The tribulation is going to be coming soon. Boy, they're going to get it. It's time for God now to be working on us. He'll get to them in time. It's His to repay. He'll avenge those who reject Him. But right now, He's working on His church. I want to say to you, let Him do it. What will it look like? I don't know. Will it be painful? Probably. But the sooner you say, He's God and I'm not, and I'll trust Him, I'm going to say it to you this way, the easier the sanding will be. The shorter the sanding will be. Well, it may be shorter. It may be easier because if He doesn't have to amp it up, if He doesn't have to change the grade of sandpaper, it'll be easier. Or increase the pressure. Or increase the pressure. (laughs) Yes. As you know. Yes, it's easier to bend your knees than have him break them. Now, folks, again, every one of us, it's going to, be, it's going to look different. Remember how Jesus told Peter how he was going to die? And he described crucifixion when he told Peter how he was going to die. And John was following, and Jesus, I mean, Peter says, well, tell me about him. How's he going to die? You just tell me how I'm going to die. I feel a whole lot better about my death if you tell me how John's going to die. What did Jesus say? If he remains alive until I return, what's that to you? You follow me. So get over something right now. Don't say, Lord, I'll be okay with my sanding if I know that Joe or Sue next to me is getting sanded just as much. It may, they may not. <laughs> one last thing. Romans chapter 8, and we'll close with this one. Many people have skipped over this in this wonderful chapter. But very interestingly, God says something in the middle of this chapter on how nothing will separate us from God's love. He says something that makes no sense at all if you don't understand what we've just talked about tonight. It says in verse 33, ah, we're going to back up to verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake, Lord, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, nothing will separate you from His love. 
Does that mean that you won't be naked? No. Does that mean that you won't experience famine? No. Does that mean you won't have a danger or sword? No. Actually, because of Christ and the way that He uses suffering to shape us, you may. But it doesn't mean God doesn't love you. So I would just say to you, if you go through suffering, you have to first say, wait a minute, sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. Is this something because of sin? And if it is, confess it, repent, God will forgive it. But if it's not, your Father is using the suffering to shape you and mold you to become like Jesus. And if God used suffering to shape Jesus Himself, don't think you're getting out of it. And that's why James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because these come that you, what? Produce patience and endurance, character and hope. I pray that He raptures us tonight. But He may not. And it looks like what's coming may not be smooth. But I know I can tell you right now, I ain't going anywhere. God's still working on me and He's still working on you. It's time for judgment to begin with the people of God. And as Edith said, that's a good thing. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the way that Your Word teaches us and shows us. And Lord, even though tonight we've talked about something that our flesh surely doesn't like, deep down, for those of us who have You as our Savior, we know this is good. And deep down, we know that it's for our best. And deep down, we know that you love us. And so, Father, I pray that everyone in this room would settle the issue of whether or not we truly have received your Spirit. And that from that point on, allow you to make your judgments and assessments. May we look forward to that judgment seat of Christ, knowing that you have been allowed to do in us in this life what you wanted. And therefore, you will reward us for what you've done in us and through us when we face the judgment seat. Father, thank you that we don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to experience the judgment or the final judgment where you separate those from you for eternity in hell who reject you. That We've been spared that judgment. We'll never face that judgment. But may we not think for a second that there won't be judgments. And may we let you make them and make the adjustments and may we yield to you and may people notice that we begin little by little to look more and more like Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.